from Janice Henderson Investors. This is Research in Action, a podcast series that gives investors a behind-the-scenes look at the research and analysis used to shape our understanding of markets and inform investment decisions. From devastating wildfires in Maui in Canada, to Hurricane Ian in Florida, to a catastrophic earthquake in Turkey, property and casualty losses are piling up and impacting the bottom line of insurance companies globally, says research analyst Andrew Manguart. The industry generally became complacent after abnormally low storm activity in 2013 to 2016, which resulted in a multi-year period of underpricing. Inflation has also added to insurers' costs, as have lawsuits and regulation, says research analyst Ian McDonald. So when the industry has to rethink risk, prices go up, and that's what we've been seeing for the last couple of years. This higher risk, higher cost environment can be a challenge for the industry or an opportunity to raise premiums and capitalize on new growth opportunities. Investors could also benefit if they know where to look. I'm Carolyn Bigda. I'm Matt Perone, Director of Research. That's today on Research in Action. Andrew, Ian, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. We've invited you onto the podcast today because as many people who are listening probably know all too well, insurance premiums have been rising and fast. Generally speaking, auto and home premiums are up over 20% this year. And in some places like California and Florida, price increases have been much higher if people can get coverage at all. Insurance for commercial properties has seen similar price increases. So let's begin by explaining why this is happening. Andrew, do you want to start with the personal lines, home and auto? Sure. So I'd bifurcate the two stories between home and auto as, as they're a little bit different. Um, maybe just starting with with auto, which I'd characterize as being a, a story of, of the pandemic. At the onset of the lockdowns, people stopped driving. That resulted in a drop-off in the frequency of accidents. And as you would imagine, that's a positive for, for auto insurers. So we saw this period of exceptional profitability where most insurers were actually rewarding some of the premium back to policyholders. Fast forward to the later stages of the pandemic, people are driving again, so accident frequency normalizes. That also happens to coincide with one, surging inflation, in other words, the cost to repair cars rising, and two, a noticeable shift in driving behavior, most notably more distracted driving. So ultimately, that exceptionally positive profitability becomes exceptionally negative. And typically, insurers would respond quickly with pricing, but their ability to push through pricing was inhibited by some key states' unwillingness to grant the necessary pricing increases. At the same time, the inflation issue was only getting worse, and by the time regulators came around, the insurers found themselves in a huge pricing hole that they are now digging themselves out of, resulting in the very large premium increases that consumers are facing today. On the home side, the issue goes back to pre-pandemic and is more structural, though there are some parallels. The industry generally became complacent after abnormally low storm activity in 2013 to 2016, which resulted in a multi-year period of underpricing. That came to roost beginning in 2017 through today, when storm activity normalized, exposing the fact that insurance was fundamentally mispriced. That was further exacerbated by two pandemic trends, one, inflation, and two, migration of Americans to coastal catastrophe-prone geographies. I'd also throw in higher reinsurance pricing as well. So the pricing hole, which was already a problem, is now an immense problem. And similar to auto, you've seen several key states push back on pricing, which in the case of home, has actually driven several large insurers to exit certain markets, namely California and Florida. 
Elsewhere, you can only push so much pricing at a time. So I think the industry is looking at persistent pricing increases over the next several years to continue to catch up and, and dig themselves out of that, that profitability and pricing hole. So it sounds like on the personal side of things, pricing wasn't keeping up as costs were rising for these companies. Is that basically exactly. the idea? Okay. Exactly. Ian, did we see the same thing happen on the commercial side as well? Yes, it's, it's been a, a fascinating few years in commercial insurance for sure. And maybe just to uh, define a few terms, in industry parlance, a hard market is when prices are going higher and a soft market is when prices are going lower. And we've been in a hard market for some time. And I, I kind of like to talk about there are basically two ways that a hard market happens. And the first one is, is traditional, and that is prices rise to compensate for either low returns or losses that are lingering in the system. And if you look pre-COVID, we were seeing some cracks in reserves, that losses were coming in higher than originally expected and elevated loss trends due to social inflation. And social inflation is broadly defined as an increase in insurance losses that's caused by, say, higher jury awards, more liberal treatment of claims by workers' compensation boards, legislated rises in compensation benefit levels, or even new concepts of, of tort and negligence. So we're really seeing attorney involvement in insurance losses leading to higher severity, and prices were moving higher even before COVID came along. And then the second way a hard market comes along, is COVID is an example, and, and this is when a uh, kind of like uh, there's a shock to the system. And uh, a, a prior example, which I think you'll be familiar with, would be 9-11. So the insured losses in 9-11 were larger than any natural or man-made event in history at the time. The losses extended from property to life to disability to workers' comp lines. It impacted aviation and liability. And these enormous losses were for kind of an unseen peril in which no premium had been collected. And so that provoked an extraordinary shift in insurance underwriting and a rapid increase in prices. COVID's along the same lines. It was a massive shock to the system when the world went into lockdown. So at one point, it seemed like the insurance industry was actually going to be on the hook for all economic losses, from business interruption policies to even physical damage, where some were arguing that the virus molecules were present on the restaurant table or something of the sort. So the insurance was going to be holding the bag for everything. And it impacted sectors like cruise lines and hospitals and nursing home policies. It was global. So you might have thought you had a, a diversified book of insurance, some exposure to U.S. wildfires, some exposure to Japan earthquakes. And then all of a sudden you saw losses in every geography all at once. So when the industry has to rethink risk, prices go up. And that's what we've been seeing for the last couple of years. Right. So COVID created this big unknown where people just didn't know what that actually, what the end cost would potentially be. Correct. There's an analogy to almost uh, stock portfolios where you know, people talk about correlations to going one when the market goes down. Well, we had a rethinking of risk and it felt like all your risks got hit at once. Mm -hmm. And so we have to rethink, you know, how much risk you're actually taking. Yes. And that usually brings capacity down and prices up. Okay. So we've seen premiums go up, Matt. But what do you what do you think? I mean, how much higher can they go from here? Well, I mean, all of the the themes and the, the the different sources of the hard market seem pretty well intact. I personally don't see that a lot of those abating anytime soon. Although inflation potentially, what do you guys think, Andrew? What do you see? Yeah, so maybe again, I'll start on on the auto side. And I think after after we saw a reacceleration in the cost to repair in early 2023 from things like wage inflation at the body shops and elongated times to repair cars, we've seen those inflationary pressures start to stabilize more recently. And at the same time, the insurers have already pushed through a tremendous amount of pricing. So while consumers might still be feeling the pain at renewal as those pricing increases are recognized, uh, I'd say next year, 2025, probably looks closer to normal for, for auto 
barring a spike in another spike in inflation. On the home side, again, I think the hard market, the pricing increases are likely to persist here, just given the hole that the insurers find themselves in from from a profitability perspective. So we're probably looking at several years of, of aggressive pricing increases on the home side. Okay. And so then what does this mean then for the industry's growth potential uh, going forward? I mean, so they're not, now they're finally catching up. They're raising the premiums to help sort of offset these rising costs. But how quickly is that going to flow down to the bottom line? Sure. You know, the uh, I mentioned how kind of how a hard market happens, and maybe I'll talk a little bit about how a hard market ends. And we usually think about it ends with higher returns. So higher ROEs attract new capital, and then this new capacity kind of saps returns, and we go through a, another cycle. You know, low returns and until people exit, we come back in again. So a traditional capital cycle. The good news, as we sit here today, we're not seeing any new capital formation to date. So no new startups in Bermuda looking to write property cat. And part of this is because the market has lost its appetite for volatile catastrophe risk. If we rewind a little bit, we actually had a a very large and growing cat bond market when rates were low. So this is the idea of issuing a bond that paid a high rate of interest, but the par value was subject to catastrophe losses. And this seemed like a really good idea when rates were low. You can think about whether risk had little correlation with the rest of your portfolio and the yield was high. These bonds could fit in your portfolio and get you on a a better risk reward trajectory. The problem is the bonds really didn't pay off like you thought they wanted. The cat losses were higher than expected. And today, why would you go through the headache of owning a cat bond when you can buy a corporate bond at a high single digit yield? So we've actually seen quite a bit of, of capital capacity come out of the industry and we haven't had any new startups. So the supply demand is is favorable for the industry at this point. Oh, that taken together is another factor that would prolong the cycle. Correct. Right? So either through the withdrawal of capital from cat bonds or reinsurers maintaining pricing, or it does kind of seem like the setup here is is just kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, we're so coming into this, were the insurance companies and their stocks, were they struggling and now it's turned around given sort of the supply de- demand dynamic or? It's a good spot to be in now, but it's a little bit of been chasing the ball downhill, if that's the way to think about it, okay. where, you know, losses have gone up, pricing has gone up, and then we've actually seen losses go up again. And so the aggregate data for the industry in the third quarter would show a reacceleration of prices. So we thought we had it and then you didn't have it. And here we go around the, you know, the track one more time, raising prices again. We've had markets where insurers have pulled out of them completely, like Florida, California, where they're just saying that the the risks are too high. And so what does that then do to the industry? Yeah, I think in those particular states, it's a combination of exposure to catastrophes, right? So Florida being a great example with hurricanes, but it's also a regulator that oftentimes is less favorable to the industry in terms of granting pricing and recognizing things like higher catastrophe levels and higher reinsurance costs in their pricing models. So in many instances, particularly on on the homeowner's insurance side, we have seen several large carriers exit markets. But I, I think what's optimistic is that we are seeing some of those regulators start to recognize the issues in their state and start to consider reforms. So while I think the outlook is bleak in some of these markets, at least over over the near term, I'm hopeful that eventually the regulators will take the medicine and push through the reforms that are needed to create healthy markets in those states. Okay. And as, so from an investor's point of view, is that sort of like a significant governor on the growth potential for the industry, or is it just a minor issue at this point? I would characterize it as more as a, as, as a minor issue overall. Pricing generally is very favorable mm-hmm. for the industry, both from you know correcting underwriting profitability woes, but at the same time, growing the revenue base from which you're deriving 
those profits. So with the hard market likely to persist, at least over the near to medium term, it's a very great environment from a growth perspective for the insurers. Sure. And I would note that in you know auto policies are, are a meaningful and mandatory household spend in the sense that you don't have to have a collision damage on your car, but you have to have liability. And so in the sense, if you, if you get denied by three insurance carriers, you'll end up in a state-sponsored pool where you'll, you'll have the insurance. And the states don't really want to be managing large pools of, of auto policies. So eventually they have to come around and, and re-engage with the industry. I would I would note one other dynamic, which is kind of fun in in the diff, in auto and and homeowners, is um, auto has been defined for, forever as what they call a lead line in insurance, meaning that people shop for auto, and it, because it's it's more expensive historically than home, and then you at the end of your conversation with your auto agent, you ask for a home policy, and then they kind of tag it on there. What's happening now is that homeowners prices are rising so quickly that homeowners is becoming the lead line, and auto is going into the backseat, and uh, and it's partly because, as Andrew described, the large cat losses, the replacement costs of the homes. And there's also been quite a bit of fraud in states where you can actually, for example, assign your homeowner's policy to a builder who then goes knocking on doors and replaces everybody's roof and charges it off to the to the homeowner's company. So we're seeing quite a bit of disruption that's leading to these, these rapid price increases and homeowners is becoming uh, you know, a more important line for the industry. Now, Ian, you mentioned bond yields earlier, and that and that's actually another interesting dynamic to this story, right, Matt? Well, the asset side of the of the ledger, yeah. Mm-hmm. Insurance companies they they take these premiums and they invest them in their general account, and so obviously the capital markets are a big influence on their returns. How how are they managing navigating through the market? Yeah, I, I would characterize higher interest rates as being a material positive for for the industry, and I think it's at least over the near term, it's most pronounced at the personal auto, personal home lines players. And that's because personal lines policies are generally no longer than a year, six months in, in some cases. And as a result, the, the investment portfolios, which are predominantly fixed income or bonds, tend to be of, of shorter duration. So as a result, the portfolios turn over more quickly and they're able to replace their lower yielding legacy bonds with today's higher yielding bonds. So able to turn over most of their securities portfolio in just a few years in, in, in many cases, which when your book is yielding, say, 2%, is very impactful when reinvestment rates today are, are north of 5% in, in some cases. Uh, so does that spell relief for policyholders? Will they get a break if the insurance companies can earn more money in the capital markets? There's certainly some debate around that. Eventually, should these yields hold up, the ROEs at the, at the insurers will, will ultimately benefit as well. We enter a more competitive market. There is reason to believe that higher interest rates propping up higher levels of profitability allow the companies to accept a lower level of, of underwriting profitability, but we still have a long way to go to get there. Sure, and I agree with Andrew. The um, depends on the, on the the insurance line of business. But if you took an auto insurance company where the losses are realized relatively quickly, so a short tail line, uh, you might have three dollars in premium for every dollar of equity that you hold at the company. So you can imagine if you had a four percent after tax yield and three to one on premiums to equity, you have a 12% uh, after-tax yield before you've made any underwriting earnings. And so the higher yields 
today are benefiting the companies for sure. The U.S. auto market also has a large share of mutual companies. So in time, the mutual companies look to rebate the customers. They don't keep profits. They, you know, they pay the employees and then look to earn almost a zero return. So the uh, you know, higher interest rates will eventually feed back into lower policy costs. The problem with the mutuals is you know, they're losing uh, 20 points of revenue on the underwriting and gaining a little bit on the investment income. So we're, we're far away from having the pricing environment to, to equalize at the moment. Mm. What about um, on a global scale? So are any of these firms looking to you know, grow overseas or outside of the U.S.? And what are the unique challenges there in doing that? Sure. Uh, for sure, you, you, you like a diversified book of business. As, as I mentioned, you know, how a hard market happens with a shock to the business. You, you'd love to be diversified, and, and COVID kind of took some of that away from us. And by diversified, I mean by line and by geography. When you think about the flow of capital or capital mobility, I have in mind this idea of a funnel, so an upside-down triangle, and then capital comes into the top of the funnel. And it's easiest to get into the top, and, and right, at, right at the easiest layer would be reinsurance. I'll exaggerate a little bit, but you can get a few on underwriters and a desk in Bermuda and off you go, you're, you're writing reinsurance. So what we usually see is capital entering the insurance industry through reinsurance. We'll have new companies, cat bonds, industry loss warrants, lots of ways for the reinsurance industry to recapitalize. And then eventually that works its way down into standard lines. If I envision that funnel with reinsurance on the top, as I move down, though, we'll see it gets harder and harder to access standard lines than small businesses where you need distribution to specialty lines where there's limited data and you, ha- you need a long history and some ec- expertise in order to write that. And then finally, you're going to end up down in personal lines or personal auto where you need brand and marketing skill and repair capabilities. So it's it's nice idea to think about, I'd like to diversify uh, by line and geography, but it's organically harder to do that in practice. It can happen in reinsurance, but it's a little harder to get into other lines with any um, in any in any reasonable timeline. So speaking of the specific lines, are there any in this current environment that stand out versus others? What, what would you say right now looks the most attractive? Sure. One interesting feature of this hard market, so prices rising, is that all lines are not moving together. And that's different <laughs> than history, where we usually see a high correlation among lines. So a little, a little something different today. DNO, which is directors and officers, so insuring you know, public company officers from, from uh, legal liability, was really hot during COVID years with the IPOs and the SPACs and new management teams and new models. But as you can imagine, that has materially cooled in, in the last year. Cyber has been slow meaningfully. Partly this is because it's really unclear exactly how to write it, what claims are covered, uh, how do you account for the losses. So cyber has slowed uh, quite meaningfully in in the last year or two. And then workers' compensation is a very highly regulated line, and that has been soft for several years and, and doesn't seem to be changing at all in near term. So it's a good environment for stock picking because we see this dispersion among pricing and firms and lines. One thing I would add to what Ian said, we think a great way to play the hard market is through the insurance brokers, which benefit from premium growth with the 10% cut that they take, but, but don't take on the responsibility of having to worry about the underwriting. And importantly, the relationship between the broker and the client has, has never been stronger with more value add being offered in an environment where companies have to navigate higher pricing and growing complexity of risk as well. So we like these companies as as high quality compounders with wide moats that are defensive in economic downturns as well. And those really fit our investing style in a lot of ways, don't they? Absolutely. And what areas seem to carry the most risk today? I think one of the big unknowns in the market today is this concept called social inflation, which is brought about by higher levels of 
litigation. You know, we're seeing certain certain specific points of litigation coming forth around asbestos and child molestation that have come back from, you know, very old, long-tailed policies that are resulting in very large verdicts. And there's a significant unknown in terms of how this social inflation dynamic plays out over the course of the next several years. And I think that's part of the reason that the hard market is being sustained, because there is an unknown around some of this. Will inflation cause a sort of Goldilocks era here? Because the insurers will benefit first before they pass that through. So will that come through meaningfully? It's, it's, a, it's a hard question to answer because uh, I think as Andrew was speaking to where the risk might hide, insurance is difficult because you have to price a policy today and the cost of goods sold you find out later on. I'll give an extreme example for asbestos where you wrote something 50 years ago and it's still bubbling up today. If you priced your policies for a low inflation world and we end up in a high inflation world, your back book's going to be in trouble and you can reprice today, but you still have to cover the losses that you didn't cover earlier. So I think the, um, the hard part or where the risk lies is in these longer tail policies and how you baked in inflation after a really low period inflation and a higher period, you might be off sides on some of the policies that you had. So the longer the duration of the liabilities, the more risk there is to those. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point because we've transitioned to where inflation's higher, interest rates are higher, severe weather events are becoming more frequent. There seems to be a lot of changes for the industry. And is that hard to price then for insurance companies going forward? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a uh, it's a little bit of guesswork. And again, pricing policies today when you find out the cost of goods sold later on, and of course, management teams seem to you know under reserve in good times and over reserve in bad times, and so it kind of exacerbates this the industry cycle itself. And you know, one of the things that we like to think through when when investing in insurance securities is you know when the uh, income statement is looking bad but the balance sheet is looking better. So when you're increasing reserves, uh, your income statement gets kind of torn apart, and then the market typically puts a, a low P.E. ratio on low earnings. But what's happening when you're adding to reserves, your balance sheet is strengthening. And so we, we, we like the part where the balance sheet is strengthening and, and the multiples are low. And the opposite would be with good times and you're releasing reserves and everybody's happy and they put high multiples on, but the balance sheet is weakening. And so it's a little bit of a counter-cyclical <laughs> investing, just like there's often counter-cyclical management. I made an analogy earlier to kind of, you know, the investment industry, but there's, there's, there's another one, another analogy here and kind of like, how do we know who good underwriters are? Because it's, you don't always know until later on. And just like if you ask, how is, how do we know Janice has investment skill when we look at our track record. And so when we look at track records for underwriting prowess, there's really only a handful of companies that over decades can produce underwriting profits. And so it's a really it's a relatively small universe of companies that, that have been profitable, you know, on average over time. And uh, we, we pay a lot of attention to those management teams. So that's a nice segue to my last question, which is, you know, if we had to sum it up, what would you say is the most important thing for uh, investors to consider today when they're looking at the insurance industry? And maybe even more importantly is, you know, what role do these kinds of companies play in a portfolio in an overall diversified portfolio for investors? So we, we've looked at this a couple of different ways. You know, one of the ways we look at this, we call it art versus science. And so the art is underwriting. So are you any good at underwriting? And the only way we can really judge that is having a long track record of underwriting profits. And the science would be something closer to a short-tailed line of business, like an auto insurer, where you might have telematics and brand and repair facilities, and you have a lot better data and insights into exactly who you're insuring. And, and you can imagine there's wide dispersion on companies that have technology advantage. We prefer 
science over art, but there's times when the underwriting cycle is in your favor and, and we like the art too. And I think given where the pricing environment is, we like underwriters here. And the last piece I'll say there's, there's art, there's science, and then there's the brokers. The intermediaries, which Andrew mentioned, which can thrive in all different environments. The fun part is if you look at the aggregate industry for PNC insurance, it's really on average over time is a slow growth, low ROE business. But if we look at, say, the last 15 years, the top 50 stocks by market cap have basically matched the S&P return over time. But within that, there's a very wide dispersion. So on any given year, there could be a handful of stocks that are up 20% and a handful of stocks that are down 20%. So it's a really interesting feature of insurance where we have slow growth and low ROEs and yet really wide dispersion, which is a perfect environment for stock pickers. And what would you say, Andrew? One thing I'd add just specifically to personal lines in terms of you know searching for, for differentiation, you know, distribution has just become so key with those that players that operate a direct-to-consumer model or have strength in the independent agent channel continuing to win market share at a very aggressive clip. These channels also support a, a cost advantage as they don't have to support their own agency. And in markets where pricing is on the rise, like we've described today across both auto, across home as well, this results in increased consumer shopping activity, which ultimately drives these consumers into the arms of the direct players that can offer the lowest price because of their their cost advantage. So mm. we tend to gravitate to those names. And those those companies also tend to have a greater level of growth as well. So whether you're looking for growth, whether you're looking for defensive characteristics, there are, there are pockets in the insurance um, industry to find those. So shopping around could be good for finding a, an affordable policy, but also a, a potentially a good stock for your portfolio. Ian and Andrew, thanks so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your insights. Next time, we'll turn our attention to 2024 and speak with the heads of Janice Henderson's sector research teams for their outlook on the year ahead. We hope you'll join. Until then, I'm Carolyn Bigda. I'm Matt Perun. You've been listening to Research in Action. to earnings or P.E. ratio measures share price compared to earnings per share for a stock or stocks in a portfolio. Concentrated investments in a single sector, industry or region will be more susceptible to factors affecting that group and may be more volatile than less concentrated investments or the market as a whole. The views presented are as of date published. They are for information purposes only and should not be used or construed as investment, legal or tax advice or as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation to buy, sell or hold any security, investment strategy or market sector. Nothing in this material shall be deemed to be a direct or indirect provision of investment management services specific to any client requirements. Opinions and examples are meant as an illustration of broader themes, but not an indication of trading intent, are subject to change and may not reflect the views of others in the organization. It is not intended to indicate or imply that any illustration or example mentioned is now or was ever held in any portfolio. No forecasts can be guaranteed and there is no guarantee that the information supplied is complete or timely, nor are there any warranties with regard to the results obtained from its use. Janice Henderson Investors is the source of data unless otherwise indicated, and has reasonable belief to rely on information and data source from third parties. Past performance does not predict future returns. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal and fluctuation of value. Not all products or services are available in all jurisdictions. This material or information contained in it may be restricted by law, may not be reproduced or referred to without express written permission or used in any jurisdiction or circumstance in which its use would be unlawful. Janice Henderson is not responsible for any unlawful distribution of this material to any third parties, in whole or in part. The contents of this material have not been approved or endorsed by any regulatory agency. Janus Henderson Investors is the name under which investment products and services are provided by the entities identified in the following jurisdictions. A. Europe by Janus Henderson Investors International Limited, 
Registration number 3594615, Janice Henderson Investors UK Limited. Registration number 906355, Janice Henderson Fund Management UK Limited. Registration number 2678531, Henderson Equity Partners Limited. Registration number 2606646, each registered in England and Wales at 201 Bishopsgate, London EC2M3AE and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, and Janice Henderson Investors Europe SA. Registration number B22848, at 2 Rue de Bitburg, L1273, Luxembourg and regulated by the Commission de Surveillance du Secteur Financier. B, the US by SEC registered investment advisors that are subsidiaries of Janice Henderson Group PLC. C, Canada through Janice Henderson Investors US LLC only to institutional investors in certain jurisdictions. D, Singapore by Janice Henderson Investors, Singapore, Limited, company registration number 199700782N. This advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by Monetary Authority of Singapore. E, Hong Kong by Janice Henderson Investors, Hong Kong Limited. This material has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. F. South Korea by Janice Henderson Investors, Singapore, limited only to qualified professional investors, is defined in the Financial Investment Services and Capital Market Act and its sub-regulations. G. Japan by Janice Henderson Investors, Japan, limited, regulated by Financial Services Agency and registered as a financial instruments firm conducting investment management business, investment advisory and agency business and type 2 financial instrument business. H. Australia and New Zealand by Janice Henderson Investors, Australia, limited, ABN 47124279518, and its related bodies corporate including Janice Henderson Investors, Australia, Institutional Funds Management Limited, ABN 16165119531, AFSL 444266, and Janice Henderson Investors, Australia, Funds Management Limited, ABN 43164177244, AFSL 444268, I, the Middle East by Janice Henderson Investors International Limited, regulated by the Dubai Financial Services Authority as a representative office. This material relates to a financial product which is not subject to any form of regulation or approval by the Dubai Financial Services Authority, DFSA. The DFSA has no responsibility for reviewing or verifying any prospectus or other documents in connection with this financial product. Accordingly, the DFSA has not approved this material or any other associated materials nor taken any steps to verify the information set out in this material, and has no responsibility for it. The financial product to which this material relates may be illiquid and or subject to restrictions and at resale. Prospective purchasers should conduct their own due diligence on the financial product. If you do not understand the contents of this material you should consult an authorized financial advisor. No transactions will be concluded in the Middle East and any inquiries should be made to Janice Henderson. We may record telephone calls for our mutual protection, to improve customer service and for regulatory record-keeping purposes. Outside of the US, Australia, Singapore, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Europe, and UK, for use only by institutional, professional, qualified and sophisticated investors, qualified distributors, wholesale investors and wholesale clients as defined by the applicable jurisdiction. Not for public viewing or distribution. Marketing communication. Janice Henderson and Knowledge Shared are trademarks of Janice Henderson Group PLC or one of its subsidiaries. Copyright Janice Henderson Group PLC. C1123-53429-1130-24TL.